Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello again, and thanks for taking the time to give us a listen. This is episode number 40 of The Next Track, and today we are welcoming the author of a pretty cool new book, well, reasonably new, it was released late last fall, entitled The Revenge of Analog, Real Things and Why They Matter. Now, you may have noticed that things like vinyl and paper and film and board games are making a comeback despite the ubiquity of their digital counterparts. And regular listeners may recall a couple of episodes ago that our computer audiophile friend Chris Conacher mentioned The Revenge of Analog. Well, today we'll be talking with its author, David Sachs. David, thank you for joining us. Great to be here, gentlemen. David, it's nice to have you. Your book touched a nerve with us since the, the point of this podcast is to talk about how people listen to music today. And Doug and I both grew up in the analog era with vinyl and cassettes, and we moved into digital. It's really interesting to look at how this niche market of vinyl is growing and becoming more important. And it, in fact, it's, it's even more interesting to find out how you discovered vinyl. Why don't you tell our listeners, how did you get into this whole vinyl record listening thing? Well, you know... I, I mean, I, I grew up in that bridge generation. I'm born in 1979, which is the year the CD was actually invented by Sony or whoever invented it. Um, and, you know, I distinctly remember as a kid in, you know, 1984, when my parents renovated their house, they got a Bang & Olsen stereo system and it had a CD player. And I remember the first time my father, you know, pressed the button and the whoosh of it opening up and... You know, the CD that they gave us with it, which was which was actually still one of my favorite albums, George Benson, Beyond the Blue Horizon, you know, right before he went like full cheese, um, uh, you know, it, it playing and it was just this crystal clear thing. But records were always there. My parents had, you know, a, a decent collection of 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 vinyl records uh, that they'd accumulated over the course of their life. And vinyl was always there when I was even in high school. Um, you know, I brought a lot of those records up to my room and, um, you know, my cousins who got rid of their turntables gave me their collections of Springsteen and the Stones and, um, you know, a lot of prog rock. And then even when I remember when I was in university, which was, you know, right at the exact same time that Napster and, and downloading came out, I, you know, brought that record collection with me to Montreal to university and, and had it. Uh, so, so vinyl was always sort of a part of my life, but it was always just, you know, whatever I had been given, whatever I could find at a, at a, you know, flea market or garage sale, if I happened upon it, I was, it was never sort of a, something that I, that I got into. And then, and then, you know, really there was about a, I'd say like a five, six year period where I didn't listen to it at all. Um, I left university, you know, I didn't, uh, I, I was kind of living around the world. I lived in South America. Um, I moved back to Toronto and I didn't have a turntable. And this was right around the time, you know, 2007, when a couple things happened. You know, I was living with my friend, Adam Kaplan, who is someone that I used to make mixtapes with at summer camp. Um, and uh, also was someone who worked for with Apple. He, he worked in sort of customer service back when they actually had call centers. Um, was the first person I knew had a CD burner. And, uh, you know, he's very technologically adept. And, and soon after we were living together, you know, we... We figured a way, we started moving our entire CD collection, which, you know, combined was a couple hundred, uh, onto iTunes. And then he figured out how to stream it wirelessly through, you know, the, the router in our apartment. And all of a sudden, you know, all the music that had been taking up all the shelf space, we'd even built together one day, I remember building a CD case from scratch, from scraps of wood. All of a sudden that was inside the laptop, inside the computer, gone and out of sight. And we could stream it, we could sit in the living room, play whatever we wanted. 
And it was almost like you could chart the graph of my interest in music dying from that, from that very second, right? As soon as we had reached the peak of convenience, um, music you don't have to buy because you could just download it for free, music you don't have to touch, music that doesn't take up space, music that you could search and categorize and do whatever you wanted with that didn't have any of the, the physical limitations. It, it, it wasn't as though I listened to more music or less music. I just stopped listening to music, period. Um, it, it just, it was out of sight and out of mind. And, and, you know, very shortly after this, Adam's parents were downsizing their house and they were cleaning out the basement and they're like, oh, do you want our old turntable and records? Like, okay, sure. Yeah, we'll take it. So we got their old turntable and hooked it up to our stereo. And we got their record collection. And this was not, you know, this was not like the Stax Motown box set. It was like lots of Neil Diamond, the complete uh, album collection of Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass. Um, you know, Streisand, I mean, this is like a Jewish suburban record collection. It was, but, but you know, even in that, we all of a sudden were drawn to it and listening to the records more and having, it, it really sparked a conversation about the difference between not the sound quality so much, um, cause that was so subjective to the stereo and the track and the album, whatever, but the experience and, and that not only got me back into listening to records and buying records, but it sort of started this broader conversation between the two of us that I started looking into about the, the bigger sort of advantage or difference that analog technology has when digital technology is so ubiqu ubiquitous. And then, you know, as I kept seeing, right, over the next few years, that phenomenon growing before my eyes with record stores opening and new records being sold and all of a sudden figures coming out about how that was not just an isolated phenomenon, um, it, it gave way to this broader idea around analog. Um, that's the heart of the book. But, you know, vinyl is the core of that, not just because it has been the most visible um, leader of that and the most visible sort of commercial and cultural indicator of, of this broader phenomenon, but it was the one that for me actually brought me into it. And is the one that I still, you know, I still go out and buy records. I listen to records every day. Um, even if, you know, the film camera I bought as part of this has been sitting idle. It's interesting that you say that you lost interest in music though, once it became dematerialized for a lot of people, for, for probably Doug and, and I, both of us, once it was easier to store more music without stacking CDs, I started discovering more music. If I go back, for example, I, I guess I insert a Grateful Dead reference in every episode of the podcast. I'm sorry. If I go back to the 90s, when I first got internet access, one of the first things I did was connect with people who traded Grateful Dead concerts on tape. But shortly after that, they started trading on CD. And this was just, this was like, you know, the fountain of youth here, bringing all these great recordings on CD. And it was so much easier on CD to get them and listen to them and store them and, and then put them on a computer. So why do you think that in your case, you were less interested in music because of that? Um, I, you know, I, I think it was, it was a progression. You know, when I, when I was in university, that was when Napster first came out. And I was actually taking a class called the History of Popular Music which um, was awesome. Like that was the basis of my degree, just, you know, music and various cultural listening. I mean, I took a class called the Beatles. So, you know, easy A. Um, and, and I remember, <laughs> you know, prior to that, you had to have CDs that, you know, there were 12 CDs that you had to get from the library and people would burn them and share them. And all of a sudden everybody could just download them, you know, in, in two, three hours. 
and you had everything there on a CD or, or on your computer. And, and of course, it did initially lead to more diving into some of these genres. If I liked something, I could go on Napster and, and or whatever, replace it after, you know, it was shut down and go and find it. Um, and, and, you know, after a certain period of time, there was so much music that I just got from burning from roommates or friends on CD or directly onto the computer. Um, uh, but I think, you know, over time, all that dematerialization, you know, it, it sacrificed something from the process of music discovery um, which lies at the heart, I think, of, of the revival, not just of records, but record stores, right? So, yes, vinyl records have had this comeback, and there's been a, you know, 16-time growth over the past decade from a low point in 2006 of less than a million albums pressed in the U.S. to, you know, whatever whatever the figure is going to be for 2016 hasn't come out yet, but it'll be something like, I don't know, 16, 17 million new records, you know, pressed and sold in the U.S., not including all the secondhand stuff. Um and, and the record store, uh, you know, we, we initially tend to thought of that as well without the inconvenience of having all this stuff on your shelves, without the inconvenience of having to schlep outside and walk in the snow or go spend hours digging through crates of some place. But when I took that away and, and for a couple of years, I mean, I'm not just talking about, you know, one week and then going back, but like a couple of years of living without it, I suddenly realized that I liked that, right? I liked having the music physically in my house that I could look at and go back to and people could come over and turn their head and look at it and start a conversation about something. You know, no one ever comes into your house and opens up your iTunes and scrolls through it. That's a great point. Whenever I go to someone's house, I always look at their bookshelves. I want to see what books they have. And if they have CDs, I want to see what they have, because it does give you an idea of what a person's like. The record store thing is interesting. So in the early 1980s, for a couple years, I used to hang out at a record store in my neighborhood and I would go there after work. I worked in Manhattan and I lived in Queens. So I'd come home on the subway and I'd go to the record store and I'd hang out with Stu and Rich and a couple other people. And it was like, it was like in that movie and that novel High Fidelity. We didn't make those best of lists, but we would sit there and we'd talk about all these records and we'd share what we had and we'd bring records we bought in, in other places and listen to them. And it's true that the, the amount of discovery we had there was, was quite extraordinary because you put three people in a room who like music and they're going to talk about music. And when they have the music there that they can just pull out of the racks, which you could do with vinyl if it wasn't sealed, you know, it, it gives you a chance to listen to it and to play it. And, and I think also, you know, that the one of the key things, there are two other key elements to that, which, um, you know, I realized once again, I started going back to record stores, um, especially when I moved back to Toronto from New York in 2010 you know, got this house where I'm living at and all of a sudden these stores started popping up, including one just up the street called June Records, where I've spent, you know, 95% of my money on records. And it's it's two things, right? One is serendipity. Finding something that you normally wouldn't find that is either totally unknown to you or something that you totally forgot about, uh, you know, a, 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 a hidden gem that, that you may have liked, maybe even had on CD, and all of a sudden it's, it's there and you're like, okay, I'm going to snap this up. Um, and, and I think the other thing is, is, you know, w when you talk about those recommendations, it's the randomness of them, right? Um, I, I think, you know, now I, I use Spotify for my digital music. I pay my 10 bucks a month. You know, when I walk my daughter to daycare, I'm in the car. That's what I'm listening to. And it has algorithms that can provide all sorts of recommendations. But those recommendations are very much 
um, you know, linear in their relationship, right? They're shots in the dark. And I, I find, I use Apple Music and I find the recommendations to be mostly worthless. Yeah. I really like the Apple Music recommendations early on because they seemed so uh, refreshing and delightful. But lately, the recommendations seem banal. I get the same things all the time. Yeah. And it's, think about Netflix, right? It's like, oh, you like this? Then you'll like some Polly Shore movie that we have. Yeah. Uh, no one will ever like that. Uh, but I've been turned on to certain things by people in the record store that were risks and they were out of left field. And I think it's that element of risk um, of someone saying, well, you know, you like J.J. Kale, you might, you know, like this bluegrass album um, uh, instead of recommending Clapton's Slow Hand, which would be the obvious choice. Right. Or yeah. something even even more totally left field because it's it's a similar vibe or just for that individual who works at the store, you know, they like it and, and they're sort of passing on their taste. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. I, I remember, you know, Ian, who owns June Records, I wanted some sort of I wanted, you know, some sort of piano based jazz uh, music that I can kind of work to. And he, he sold me this Bill Evans album that was you know, way too trippy and way too experimental. Um, but, uh, you know, that's the risk you take. Right. So so what's interesting and this is something we've discussed, I think, on this show in the past, is that the broader the selection available, the harder it is to choose what to listen to. Apple Music says they have 40 million tracks. I think Spotify says 30 or 35 million. And when you look at that, it's just it's just it's just overwhelming. You can't begin to even scratch the surface. So in a way, having that sort of personalized recommendation and particularly someone who knows you, who knows what you like over time, has infinitely more value than any browsing or random albums you'll come across on a streaming service. Well, and I think the other thing is the physicality of that, right? So um, it's one thing if those 40 million songs or you know 10 million albums or whatever the hell it is, is in a physical space, right? In you know an amoeba, which would be, I guess, the biggest record store that I've ever been into. Um, because there, you know, when you're in the physical space, you can use your eyes, you can use your ears, you can ask someone for help, you can go over and thumb through things, and suddenly it becomes at a human scale. But when you know 40 million songs is packed into you know four inches by two inches, um, your the, the way you're able to access it is always going to be limited by the size of that space. And so you know it, it's like going into some Las Vegas buffet restaurant where they have, you know, a thousand items on the menu. And it's like, what would you like today? We have everything. And I'm just like, ah, I don't know. I don't know. Tell me, tell me, tell me. I'd rather go into, you know, the sandwich shop in, in, in Philadelphia where it's like, we got three things. What do you want? I'm like, I'll take that one. Yes. That's, you know, that's the one thing you want. I mean, I think, you know, there's a great um, book by a uh, sort of um, commercial or pop psychologist called the, the paradox of choice. Yeah. Like, we don't like, you know, too much choice is paralyzing. And I think that's what I feel whenever I'm, you know, on something like Spotify, which is why I'm either, you know, in the five seconds I have between stepping out the door of the daycare and putting on my gloves because it's really cold, you know, I'm either like, okay, I don't know, just, you know, give me my weekly playlist of randomness or I'm going to listen to Bill Withers again because that's <laughs> a go-to and it'll always make me happy. So uh, vinyl acquisition is becoming a big thing. For instance, you even talk in the book about how record-pressing plants can't keep up with orders and that sort of thing. So obviously vinyl isn't just for niche audiophiles anymore. Who are the consumers of vinyl? 
it is largely being driven by younger music listeners. If, if you look at the demographics of who are the people that are driving the sales of records, especially turntables uh, and new, new, newly pressed records, it is consumers who are, you know, 16 up to their sort of mid 30s, right? It is not um, the generation of baby boomers that grew up with records in the first place. There have always been those who held on to record collections. There's always been that audiophile segment for whom, you know, it's, you know, they can debate hours on the weight of the, the tone arm. Um, and what's the best preamp and, you know, delve into a level of geekiness even a deadhead might find um, <laughs> sad. But, but you know, I think the thing about the, the, the revenge of vinyl records and the return of it and why it's not going away is that, you know, there is something almost unspeakably special about records. Um, they are the peak of physical music in, in its form. And, and, you know, we're talking about a technology that's, you know, pre-war um, uh, and has changed relatively little, if at all, since that point in time. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I think a big part of this is just this unspoken joy that it brings to people for all sorts of ways that are that are practical and sort of quantifiable and ways that are just not like it's it's totally irrational it makes no sense it costs no money it's definitely the least efficient way to listen to music but there's something about it that um that is magical my dentist told me something back in December. So I have a dentist who's a classical music fan. He shares some of my musical interest, like he likes Bob Dylan, things like that. And I saw him in December, and after we were finished, he goes into the back room and he comes out with a, a, a plastic bag and he says, guess what this is? And he had a gleam in his eye and he pulled out a record. It was Carlos Kleiber's recording of Beethoven's Seventh Symphony on Deutsche Grammophon. And he was so happy and he said, his wife bought him a turntable for Chris for an early Christmas present, and he bought a couple of records. And so he got this record, and he invited some friends over, and they had a sing some single malt whiskey, and they sat down and they listened to it. And he said, that's what I like about it, that I can make an event out of it. Yeah, it's, it is. It, you know, I, I think it's that thing of, of what we were talking about again, right? You could not say, hey, come over. I got, you know, we're going to stream some great music. <laughs> um, I remember, and, and I know exactly why, because, you know, that requires people to look at screens, look at their phones. Um, I remember the first time I ever experienced Sony was at a friend's cottage outside of Toronto a couple summers ago. And the thing that struck me and the thing I hated about it, uh, even though my family ended up getting a Sony system is, you know, it was like everybody was cutting the last person's song off. Oh, I got something better. Oh, I got something better, right? And you couldn't stop it. There was no way to lock them out. Um, uh, and, and I think, you know, when you put a record on by yourself or with a group of people, the only thing you can do is listen to that record. I mean, unless you're Grandmaster Flash, you know, you have two turntables. That's the only thing you can do is, is sit and listen to it. And, and, you know, you can't make social comments. You can't link it up. You can't, you know, you can't tweet a, a clip of the music or anything. Yeah. Or a link to it or something. You'd have to actually search for it on Amazon or wherever if you wanted to tweet something about it. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, that in many ways that that sort of just brings people back to it. There's a great event here. I think it's every Monday night, like at a bar two blocks from where I live in Toronto. Uh, and it's called A Side to the B Side or something like that. Um, uh, and it, it's a debate. So the, the, the gentleman is the bartender. You know, people will bring in albums 
he'll put on an album, play side A, and then the the people in the bar all vote whether to play side B or to move on to another album. Um, and again, it's this highly social thing where, yes, you could replicate that. I, I know someone who replicated that with an app that ended up getting sold for some stupid amount of money, you know, where people in the bar vote with their phones and the one with the highest vote gets the most points and blah, 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 blah. Like this is, you know, it's an excuse to talk about music. Yeah. And I think people will pay for that. And there's a value to that. Yeah. And we're talking about your book here, The Revenge of Analog. And I think it's interesting that if I'm not mistaken, you devoted one paragraph to the question of whether analog, whether vinyl sounds better than CD. And, and rightly so. Doug and I both firmly believe that it doesn't sound better, but that's not what you're talking about right now. You're talking about the, this social aspect of music. Some Someone from a company who makes hi-fi equipment told me last week he uses the term music as a destination, where music isn't just wallpaper. It's not just background music, but it's it's a reason for listening to music. and And I think that's what makes a lot of difference. Your book talks about vinyl, but that's not the entire book. You talk about a number of other things. You talk about moleskin notebooks. You talk about film. I'm doing air quotes, film that you put in cameras to take pictures, again, in air quotes, and you don't have to apply filters to them. You talk about board games, a couple other things. How, how did you, because there are a lot of analog things you didn't talk about. Um, you didn't talk about pens. You didn't talk about watches, things like that. How did you choose what to discuss and why did you go in certain directions? Like moleskin, it, it's become almost a cliche of, you know, hip people to have a moleskin notebook. Well, what I wanted to look at was analog technologies that were resurgent and specifically companies that were growing and profiting and, and, and if possible, new companies that had sort of started out post-digital. Like it, you know, started out and succeeded selling and making analog products or services. Um, uh, there is there is a chapter actually on a company that makes wristwatches in Detroit. Uh, right, that's right, Shinola. But you talk about them, you talk about them as a manufacturing process, not a, as watches, a, as a collectible or whatever. Each, each company sort of told a different aspect of how yeah. this works or how this benefits. But I, I think for me, it was very important not to be nostalgic, not to focus on here's the last company doing this, trying to survive. You know, it, for me, it was very important to make the argument uh, about growth and innovation and that, you know, here were companies that have begun, you know, making turntables, pressing records, um, um, you know, you know, making film for cameras, uh, what, whatever it was, well after digital technology had sort of supplanted that as the primary means of that technology. Uh, and, and, and each aspect would show sort of a different part of why analog was having a resurgence or or why you know what the challenges were to that and what the advantages were if i can just throw in a quote from your book in your introduction you say the revenge of analog is occurring now precisely because digital technology has become so damn good yeah and, and i think that's you know to get back to music i mean it, the, the that's the perfect example right i can now listen to whatever i want for ten dollars a month or if i want to listen to ads for free on my phone and you know hook it up to whatever pair of speakers I want and listen to it anywhere, right? I, I'm limitless in that. And that is, I mean, the peak of music listening technology in terms of convenience and in terms of cost and, and in terms of everything. And so because of that, I'm now free to indulge with my my free money that isn't the $100 a year I spend on this thing um, to buy records and, and to listen to it, right? Before, 
you know, I didn't have a choice in, in you know, the 1980s or, or even the 1990s, right? I had to listen to CDs. I, I would have had to have listened to records. Um, but now, <clears throat> because I can do all this, I'm sort of free. It's almost like, you know, my dad is really into bicycles and has, you know, half a dozen bicycles and really into fancy road bikes and loves road riding and all that. Um, and he can do that because he has a car and, uh, you know, there are airplanes, <laughs> not not like a peasant in, in, you know, 1960s China who only has a bicycle, um, uh, or, or, you know, you can have beautiful candles scattered around your house because you have lights and light switches. And so you're free to sort of indulge in that as, as, as a hobby. So I think it's in many ways, you know, that, that, that's it. And then in other ways, you know, the technology, um, makes these things possible. Right. Uh, the digital technology allows people to trade um, vinyl records around the world that they want. So if you want, you know, a specific recording of, you know, um, Hot Rats by Zappa, I'm just looking at the Zappa poster over your shoulder. Oh, yeah. Is that who that is? Um, uh, you know, you can go on Discogs and find it. And someone in France might have the, the pressing that you're looking for and, and buy it, right? Um, you know, it allows people to research things and, and to even fund things through, through sites like Kickstarter, um, which, which, you know, allows these sort of niche hobbies uh, and, and analog pursuits to grow and become economically viable in a way that they probably wouldn't have been, um, you know, 20 odd years ago. There's one thing that you didn't discuss in the book. And I think it's kind of interesting because when you look at these different analog, let's call them technologies that you're talking about, you tend to find that there are a lot of people who are interested in a lot of these analog things. In other words, there, there's a Venn diagram of specific people who, who, I'm wearing a watch. I, I had an Apple watch for a year and a half and I gave up a couple months ago. I have some very nice pens that I've been collecting. I don't, I don't listen to vinyl, but I am interested in all sorts of things like that. So what is it about people like me and other people that drives them to search for these non-digital, let's say non-modern technologies? And, and it's, not, it's not about nostalgia. And you mentioned that earlier about vinyl. I don't think that's what it is. I think it's fundamentally that we are humans, right? And, um, you know, we, we will always gravitate and get more out of experiences that are sort of built at human scale, which is what, what someone who's in the technology industry, you know, talked to me about in the book, uh, when I interviewed him and that is, that is, you know, um, things we can touch, things we can see, things that make, give us more deeper interactions with people in, you know, a face-to-face -face way. Um, uh, those are, are the, the sort of richer interactions that we'll have um, in the world. And, and so as so much more becomes, you know, packed behind the screens of our phone, I, I think that people who gravitate towards this will, will find that, you know, the benefits they get might apply to other areas. Now, you know, some people, again, I think it's very individual, right? There's a lot of people who collect records that couldn't give a damn about um, uh, uh, something like board games or or about watch, wristwatches or um, or pens. Uh, and, and and that's fine. I mean, I think it's whatever works for people, whatever gives them pleasure or, or whatever they find is sort of a useful tool for working or creativity, right? Um, but I, but I do think it is, it is, you know, fundamentally a, a search for a kind of balance, 
um, a balance of the technologies that we have in our life and the way they affect us. And, um, and, and I think that's just simply going to grow as the digital technology becomes more pervasive. To close, can you think of an area where analog hasn't yet made a resurgence where you would expect it to? I think in the world of print um, publishing, you know, newspapers, magazines, I, I think it is still at the point where, you know, the traditional aspect of the industry and the traditional model of the industry hasn't yet hit that rock bottom point where um, where then it's free to sort of experiment and 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 find its new new life. I think that is that is something that's certainly coming. But you know, sometimes there are things that you can't even expect. The the cassette tape phenomenon is is astounding to me. I, I remember someone saying, Oh, you're gonna write about cassettes too? And I'm like, no, no, that's stupid. And Lo and behold, now I'm writing an article about cassette tapes and mixtapes because the cassette market has been, you know, growing on the back of the vinyl market and uh, continues to grow. And again, it's not just people trading, you know, dead shows, but it's people, um, you know, selling mixtapes and making mixtapes and, and, and even new tapes for, you know, $13. You can go to Urban Outfitters and get the latest Jay-Z album on cassette tape. I'm a bit more skeptical about cassette tapes than, than vinyl. Just for the access thing, you can't access the beginning of a song very easily on a cassette tape. But maybe that's part of the, maybe that's one of the good things about cassettes that you have to listen to the whole side. One of our first shows was discussing the difference between songs and albums. And it's true that on cassettes, whether it's a pre-recorded cassette, so you've got one side on one side of the cassette and the second side on the other, or whether you've been recording albums onto cassettes, so you've got one album on one side and one on the other, you're more likely to listen to that as an album than you would to try and listen to songs because it's just impossible to listen to songs. I mean, think about your dead, your beloved dead shows, right? Who would, you know, to to sit through a 25-minute dark star of, I don't know, you know, Coventry 82. I'm just making this up. Um, uh <laughs> Uh, you know, if I could, if I had a fast forward button on that, I mean, forget <laughs> it. The band, the band would have been dead and gone. They would have just stuck to the American Beauty, you know, short, short, short singles. Um, you know, one of the best things was you had to sit through it. You couldn't fast forward that, right? You had to, you know, you put it in your sob and, and <laughs> there you were. So, terrible. I'm, I'm very sad. No, no, that, that makes total sense. David Sachs, thanks a lot. Your book is The Revenge of Analog, Real Things and Why They Matter. There'll be a link in the show notes. And thanks a lot, David, for joining us. It's great to talk to you. Thank you both. We are now going to tell you about what we've been listening to lately. Kirk, what's your next track? So I mentioned in a recent show that sometimes I'll listen to an artist's music, not all of their music, but a lot of their records. I'll go for a day or two or three listening to the same artist. Recently, I've been listening to Harold Budd, who is a pianist and who's, I believe his very first recording was with Brian Eno in one of the four ambient records that Eno made. This one's called Ambient to the Plateau of Mirror in 1980. It was followed up by another album with Brian Eno called The Pearl. Harold Budd's got this beautifully melodic, sinuous, piano style, sort of satiesque. And with these two Brian Eno albums, there's a bit of processing and reverb and delay that makes it sound a bit more electronified, if I could say that. But it remains this beautiful piano music. So the record I've been listening to today and that I'm going to listen to a few times is called Perhaps. It's a live recording that Harold Budd made in 2006. It's 70 minutes long. It's a continuous improvisation. It's split into 13 tracks, but it's just one long performance. You recognize 
melodies uh, as different sections of it, but it's not like he's playing songs that he's recorded. The closest thing I can think of is, is Keith Jarrett's improvisations, where it does these long, hour-long improvisations on a theme. It's not the same kind of music, Keith Jarrett's jazz, and sometimes a little bit far out jazz, but it's the same style here. This is a pretty obscure record label called Samadhi Sound. Harold Budd's mostly on small labels these days. And it's a beautiful record. I can just put it on and listen to it. And I was listening to it this morning while I was working and every once in a while a melody would pop up and I would just stop and sit there and listen for a minute and stop my work. It's really, it's, it's an arrestingly beautiful record. So it's called Perhaps by Harold Budd. What about you, Doug? What are you listening to this week? I found one of those albums that I had put on hiatus because I liked and played it so much. So it's been a few years since I've listened to Kirsty McCall's Tropical Brainstorm. This is Kirsty McCall's last album before her Too Soon and Tragic Death in 2000. People in the UK are probably much more aware of Kirsty McCall's early pop stuff, but in the US, she's really not very well known at all other than for uh, recording Fairy Tale of New York, which she recorded with the Pogues and that we hear a lot at Christmas time. And she may also be known for the song from this album called In These Shoes. The whole album's theme seems to be very British person in not very British place tries to maintain Britishness. And in this case, the music was inspired by her visits to Cuba. And it, it sounds quite authentic, although the album was recorded entirely in the United Kingdom. For me, this is an album where every song is just a little gem, very witty lyrics, very well thought out songs. And because it had been seven years since her previous album, I'm willing to bet that she would have continued to record in this South American vein because she really seems to relish it so much. Unfortunately, this is her final album, but it's so good. Christy McCall, Tropical Brainstorm is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>